What would you do if you found $1 million? That's the question I asked everyone who joined me on Sunday, July 1st at Tattooed Moms on South Street during the 6th Annual Philly Podcast Festival. I know what you might be thinking. Yeah, right. Who's going to leave a million dollars lying around? And even if I did find that kind of money, there are cameras everywhere. Plus, banks have those die packs that explode if you take the money anywhere outside of a certain radius of the bank. Maybe I should have prefaced my question with a few details. The money is not traceable because it's not sequential. There aren't any die packs or anything that would target you as the person who found the cash. And it's almost 40 years ago, 1981, so no street cameras, very few outdoor security cameras. What would you do if I told you there was a chance you could get away with it? Would you take it? Would you hold on to it and wait for a reward to be issued and then return the money so you look like a good guy and still get a little something for your efforts? Maybe you don't turn it in. Maybe you decide to keep it and lay low. How long would you have to sit on that money before you could do anything with it? How would you spread it around? You can't tell anyone, and I mean no one. Not your mom, your husband or your wife, your best friend, certainly not the guy at the corner bar or your neighborhood crew or your dealer or your buddy whom everyone believes is connected to a local organized crime family. You and I don't have contacts like that. Sure, we might know the local bartender but I don't have a dealer, and I certainly don't know anyone connected to the mob. But Joey Coyle did. So did his young friends John Baylaw and Jed Pennock. On February 26, 1981, 28-year-old South Philly boy Joey Coyle was crashing. Joey was addicted to meth. His life hadn't turned out the way he'd hoped. Almost 30 years old, no job other than the occasional work he was able to get down on the Delaware waterfront as a longshoreman and mechanic. He lived in his mom's house and struggled to find money to support his meth habit. Joey convinced two guys from the neighborhood, almost 10 years younger than him, to give him a ride to score what Joey liked to call blow. That old expression, you fly, I'll buy? Except Joey couldn't buy. He didn't have any money, and his fate would have it his dealer wasn't home. Joey slipped into a funk that was worse than the one from which he awoke earlier that afternoon and told the guys to take him home. His friend John drove his dad's Chevy Malibu through South Philadelphia. He turned off Delaware Avenue onto a shitty little cut-through street called Swanson that ran past a junkyard and the Purelator Armored Car Company. John almost hit two tubs in the road when Joey yelled stop. Inside a yellow tub on the side of this narrow, lousy paved street were two canvas bags filled with money. $1.2 million. It was 1981. No security cameras. The bills weren't marked. They weren't sequential. It was casino money. Hell, in a way, it had already been laundered. All Joey Coyle's problems were solved. Money for drugs, for his young girlfriend, for his sick mother. Money to make him look like a big man around the Front Street neighborhood where he lived, instead of the pushover who suffered from a constant streak of bad luck. Sounds pretty good, right? Yeah, not so much. Less than six days later, Joey's streak of bad luck had worsened. Joey Coyle was a millionaire for six days, and it was probably one of the worst weeks of his life. I'm Dina Marie your host on this Twisted Live show. Welcome to Twisted Philly. 
There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Billy Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Billy. All right, it just got seriously quiet. What the hell? I'm waiting on David to tell me everything's ready to go. But he doesn't. <laughs> Is it good? Can I go? Yeah, we're recording. Oh, shit. Why didn't you tell me? I did us, too. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> hey, Twisters, what up? Coming out on a Sunday night, on a work night, which I know is maybe not the easiest to be out in the city and out having fun. And I don't want to cut my back to you, so I'm going to flip back and forth. And I, and I have to share, so about halfway through Adam's show, somebody walked into the room and I started sobbing like I was a psychotic mess. One of my dearest friends for the last 26 years, are we even old enough to be friends for 26 years? Yeah for about 26 years, who left Philly, she lives in North Carolina, surprised me, and her sister, who still lives here in Philly, surprised me, and she walked in, and I had no idea she was going to be here, and her kids are here, her husband's here, I haven't seen them since they moved, well, no, I have seen, I have seen you when we met for brunch, but I haven't seen the kids since you moved, I was at the hospital the day after Nick, her son, that handsome young man right there, was born many years ago. <laughs> So it's, um, it's, this is even more special than anybody could ever imagine. So we're going to start with a little bit of an AMA. I do have a story to share as well, but when we were here last year, we had a Q&A for a little while. So it really just depends on if anybody has any questions. You can ask me anything. I can't promise I'll answer everything, but you can absolutely ask. Jeremy is here with me, so some of you know... <laughs> All right, so everybody knows. Everybody knows that Jeremy and I are a pod couple, as are Terrence and Crystal, who met through a love of podcasting. So just putting it out there. You do? How do I not know what your show is? I don't know my glasses on. Oh my God! And I just like, I just like we're just wearing the t shirt. Okay, my bad, seriously. You can ask me anything. You can ask Jeremy anything. We'll see how it goes. And, you know, if there aren't too many questions, we'll just get into some storytelling. The wedding is October 31st, 2019. And when I told, when I told Ina that, I think your first response was, oh, he knows what he's getting himself into then. Which clearly he does. The man just drove across the country over the last three days to be here in Philly. You did suggest that date because you know the kind of person I am. So yeah, it's going to be on Halloween and my face will be painted, just saying. So Sharon asked Jeremy if he would interview the hosts of Wine and Crime. Yeah, we've got Mike. So if anybody wants to get on Mike. So here's the irony of ironies. I am not comfortable speaking in front of people. <laughs> even, though I, even though I host podcasts and... Have a lot to do with other podcasts. I don't know if Wine and Crime wants to come on the show. 
I mean, not that I know that they don't either. I just, I haven't thought about it. I've kind of, true crime is like the genre. So I kind of try to pepper those in a little bit at a time. Otherwise, anybody who doesn't like true crime starts going, ah, it's how true crime. Well, they, they so, follow me on Twitter, so maybe I could put in a good word for you. If they would like to come on the show, I would love to have them on the show. So there you be, go. between the two of us, we could put in a word. Yeah. Okay. So Jeremy, if you're not familiar, Jeremy hosts a show called Podcast We Listen To, where he interviews other podcasters to give you kind of a behind-the-mic view into who are the hosts and what's their show about and how do they create it. And he's also the founder of the Podcast We Listen To Facebook community, which... He thinks it's no big deal, but I think it's a huge fucking deal because, yeah, it's got almost 20,000 members now, and it's one of the places to go on social media if you want to interact with other people who really enjoy podcasts of all types. But my show started as just a way for me to get to talk to podcast hosts because <laughs> I was a listener and I wanted to, you know, I wanted an excuse to talk to them. So. And we host our own show. We do. Jeremy and I launched a show a few months ago. It's called Educating Jeremy because through our friendship, we realized that Jeremy hasn't seen shit when it comes to movies, especially <laughs> especially movies I really love. So I wanted him to start watching some films that I really enjoy. And before we even, God, at least a year ago, before we'd even started watching movies together, Jeremy had said, oh, we should do a podcast about it and we could call it Educating Jeremy. And then... A year later, we did. Yeah, so we have a show together as well that's about movies. Thanks, babe. Good plug. <laughs> Thanks. That's what I'm here for. Make sure it's in the show notes. <laughs> Anything else? Anything about the show or? How did you guys meet? I don't know the Oh, how did Jeremy and I meet? Yeah. He, well, jump, jump in. He heard me. Wrong. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. I'm just fucking. So I, I was a member of the podcast we listened to community. I didn't really know Jeremy. We would talk online occasionally, just pod stuff. And he heard me on the Insight podcast. So then we started talking a little bit more often and just became friends. Nina Instead suggested that I interview you yeah. for the show. So we were just friendly online through through the community and talking about podcasts. And then when you interviewed me, I think uh, there was something, but it was like, oh, I don't know. I don't really know this guy. He doesn't really That's know what everybody me. We've never me. met. But when the episode came out, we started getting all of this feedback on social media that was like, smoking, there's something going on there. There's all kinds of chemistry. And we were like, ah, whatever. And um, so we were just friends, and we both went to CrimeCon. And when we met face-to-face, then it was like, brown chicken wow. <laughs> What? No. No. Are you blushing? I don't blush. Shut up. So yeah, we met face to face and then we knew there was something big here. And then a month later, I flew out to visit him in Wyoming. And then so we after CrimeCon, we have pretty much been around each other about every six to eight weeks between him coming to Philly or us meeting up in different cities. Or for, me coming to Philly. Or you coming to Philly. Or me coming to Philly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So no offense to the residents of the lovely state of Wyoming. There's a Target. There's a Walmart. Um, there's beautiful mountains and scenery. 
I have horrible altitude sickness. Yeah. There, there just, there wasn't much. And, you know, but you're kind of a city guy too. I mean, you're yeah. not from Wyoming. I would rather be in the city than in Wyoming. That's yeah. For sure. Yeah. It was kind of crazy because I, you know, I'd been divorced a really long time, you know, dated here and there, whatever. And I was one of those women that was like, I am never getting married ever again. I remember you right? saying that on one of your episodes. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I did. And I actually had a listener be like, wait, you're engaged to Jeremy, but didn't you say, like, I guess he's a newer listener because he only recently heard it. Ina's known me 26 years and not that I wasn't open to relationships, but just really didn't want that again. Pretty soon after we realized that there was something here, my, everything changed. So... I know you're seeing this all soft and gushy side of me, which I try to hide, but yeah. Where's the F-bombs? They're coming, especially with him here. He says motherfucker all the time. That's his favorite expression is MF. Me? Yes, no. you. Terrence, well, your, your hand went up. Did you have a question? Anyway, so. Oh, okay. Oh, you, okay. So we've got a couple of them. So, you know, I, I want this to be interactive. I want you to feel like you can ask questions if you know Anything about, you know, the topic I'm going to be talking about later, you should feel totally comfortable interjecting. You can jump on mic if you have a question for us or about the story that I want to share. So this is this is not one-sided. And yes, I do use profanity on the show. It's not in every episode. It's not necessarily something I'm intentionally trying to do. But as I'm talking, if it just comes out of my mouth, yes, you will hear an occasional F-bomb. You'll hear holy crap. You'll hear shit a lot. Shit seems to be my favorite. So it's fine if anybody cares to join us in that colorful language. Is there any other, any other questions before, uh, before we start talking a little stories? Well, right. I have, then I'm going to get off mic before I wreck your story because I'll be throwing in all kinds of... You can throw in anything you want. It's whatever you're comfortable doing. Whatever you want. All right. Go ahead. All right. So okay. I have a question for all of you. What would you do if you found a million dollars that was untraceable? Put it in your basement, spend it, pay bills. Pay off my student loan. Buy a Okay. <laughs> Adam, what would you do? Let me ask this in two I, parts. Right now, what would you do? And when you were actually a cop, what would you have done? Uh, well, legally, I would do uh, But retired Adam. <laughs> retired Adam. I would, I would buy ridiculous shit if I had the money. Like, I would buy, I would say something like, I would get like an animal fight league. Just, just to see, like. A what? An animal fight, fight league. Just fight like a giraffe. Like, who would win? Like, you know? <laughs> just because I'm curious. I'm just a curious guy. An animal fight league. An animal but fight league. I would do with, like, crazy money. Like, I would do something like that. I'm not, I'm not responsible for so Adam's one of these guys. So what about the wins. folks behind? There's there's folks behind me that unfortunately I can't see my back is to you. Adam's would you guys one of these guys that wins five million dollars and then like a year later he's broke. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so our dear friend Adam from Nerds with Words is talking about an animal fight league and all kinds of crazy shit with money. What would you guys do if you found a million dollars? I Save the you. animals that Thank Adam you. is fighting. Much. We basically need to walk behind Adam with a pooper scooper to clean up his messes yeah. and our million dollars. She said she would save the animals that Adam is fighting. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to say that. 
<laughs> you just want to yeah. see some kangaroos box each other. Okay. I don't think the animals can tap out, though. So by and large, <laughs> nobody in the room would turn it in. Right, it's untraceable, right? The bills are not sequential, they're not marked. I would like to say that I would turn it in, but I can't genuinely say that I would that I would do that. I would at least contemplate how long would I have to sit on this for and how would I have to spread it around? Where, where do I bank it for a while? Right? Because that's the that's the kind of thing that you can't just go from one day I'm walking, you know, I'm walking around taking SEPTA to get to work and the next day I'm driving a Porsche like that's right. That's IRS time. They're but I don't know that it would cross on. my mind to check and see if those bills were sequential and marked and all these things. I'd just well, be like, hot damn! Today, in 2018, you could probably guarantee that if you found bags of money on the side of the road, you need to turn that shit in. But in 1981, <laughs> if you found bags of money on the side of the road, probably have an easier time holding on to that if you weren't stupid about it. The story that I'm going to share with you happened in February of 1981. It was on February 26th, not that far from where we are today. So I wanted to stay in South Philly because of where we are here at Tattooed Moms. There was an armored car company called Purolator. And I promise you, I will probably say Percolator at some point because <laughs> it's just I say Purolator and I hear Percolator in my head. They did a pickup from the Federal Reserve Bank on Delaware Avenue, which now today we know is Christopher Columbus Boulevard because it's all fancy. But back in the day when we were hanging out down there, it was Delaware Avenue. The Purolator hub where the armored car, it's not a factory, but where the armored car company was, was like maybe a five, six minute drive from the Federal Reserve Bank. It was three streets. These trucks had some, some very sophisticated locking systems, right? I mean, it's an armored car. So you need to make sure that this is the kind of vehicle that nobody can just walk up when nobody's looking, open the door and, and get in. Back in 81, two drivers that did this pickup from the Federal Reserve Bank on Delaware, their names were Bill Proctor and Ralph Saracino. They pull into the lot, they get through the gate, the dispatcher opens the gate for them, and she gets on the mic and says, your back door is open. And he's like, oh, you know, you're, you're funny. No, your back door is open. So he parks, flies out of the truck. And indeed, one of the back doors of the truck was open. And the truck was empty. It wasn't empty when they left the Federal Reserve Bank. That's going to be a real bad feeling. Not only are you losing your job, but who's going to believe that you didn't do something with this money? Because Purolator had, they had a few problems once in a while where a driver would maybe peel... $2,000, $3,000 off of a haul. They wouldn't find it. They, the company wouldn't figure it out right away. It wouldn't be until that deposit was made and wherever the bank was receiving the deposit, they realized it came up short. Usually it would be somebody who would go down to Atlantic City. They'd be gambling. They'd be drunk. They'd miss a couple of days of work. They wouldn't call in to say that they were missing work, right? That's usually what the situations were when they had a problem with the driver. This was something entirely different. He gets to the back of the truck and it's empty. When he left the Federal Reserve Bank, there were two large tubs that they put in the back of the truck. One of them was empty, and the tubs were, they looked like a wheelbarrow with a lid on it. They had two wheels in the front, because you figure when they're full of money, they're probably pretty heavy. The second tub had two bags in it. One bag was $800,000, and the second bag was $400,000. $1.2 million disappeared off of this truck. So Purolator, of course, they called the cops. And South Philly detective's office showed up. 
Immediately, the company believed that these two guys stole the money. The police also believed they stole the money. But when they started talking to Bill Proctor, he explained to them that as soon as they realized the truck was open, they drove back onto Swanson Street to double check their route. And they found the tubs. There were two guys standing over them like, hey, man, was there something in these tubs? Because now not one of the tubs was empty, but both of the tubs were empty. So you think about the timeline. It only takes six minutes to get from the bank to Purelator's hub. And in that time, they pull in, they realize the tubs are gone, they pull out, and they find the empty tubs. Purelator wanted to put these drivers through lie detector tests. Now, this was back in the 80s when we didn't realize that lie detector tests were just bullshit, right? We thought that they were something really significant. And we have a former police officer sitting here, so you may or may not have a different perspective. Please, please share. Today, we realize that there are people that can pass lie detector tests when they are lying and those that are looked at in a very negative light, even though they are truly innocent people, right? But back in 1981, lie detector tests seemed like something that were really significant. Both the drivers offered to take lie detector tests. And one of the detectives really felt like they were being genuine. He felt like they were being truthful. He walked back down Swanson Street, and as he's walking down the street, those two guys that had seen the tubs earlier came out. They worked in a junkyard across the street from where Purelator's hub was. And he said, did you see anything? And he said, yeah, we saw the truck come down Swanson. Now, Swanson is kind of an access road. The area we're talking about around Front Street, it's not very far from here, and it's, it's an area that sits under 95. These are neighborhoods that were, they were thriving more before 95 was built, but all that construction really tore apart some of the neighborhoods around Front Street. So Swanson, nobody used this road because it was a piece of shit. It was so full of potholes and bumps. The only people that used this road really were a lot of truckers who were hauling from the waterfront on the Delaware River, trying to get to other parts of South Philly and avoid some of the lights on Delaware Avenue. So this wasn't a very public street. So these two men that worked at the junkyard across the street said, we saw two or three trucks come by. They swerved to avoid hitting these tubs. And then a car came down the street. It was a maroon Malibu. Now, it's not a Malibu like what we're used to today, right? These sleek, cool little cars. This thing was a tank. It was a 1971 Chevy Malibu, maroon, and it had a blue fender. It stuck out like a sore thumb. The other reason it stuck out is because the guys driving this car almost hit the tubs. So they stopped the car. The guy in the passenger seat leans out. This is everything that the police detectives are being told. He leans out of the car. He looks in the tub. He grabs whatever was in the tub, throws it in the front seat. Then he gets out of the car, picks up what the, the bystanders, the witnesses can see as a bag, throws that one in the back seat, and that car takes off like a bat out of hell. Within minutes of that armored car pulling in to Purelator, somebody stole $1.2 million. And the person that stole the money was a millionaire for six days. So everything I'm about to tell you happened in less than a week. The money was stolen on February 26th, 1981. And by March 3rd, the person who stole the money had been arrested. And his name was Joey Coyle. Does anybody remember? I see Greg nodding his head. Does anybody remember Joey Coyle? So I was 12, maybe, when this happened. I don't remember it. What I remember is going to see John Cusack in the movie Money for Nothing in 1993. 
John Cusack played Joey Coyle. In the movie, which was produced by Disney, John Cusack was kind of down on his luck, finds the money, becomes like the Prince of South Philly before he gets arrested. And some of that is true to life. But what they left out of the movie is that Joey Coyle had a severe drug addiction. He was severely addicted to meth. So Joey was 28 years old. He grew up on Front Street, not too far from Wolf Street, not very far from where we're sitting tonight. His father passed away when he was young. You know, his sister did all right for herself. His older brother did all right. But Joey, it didn't matter what this guy tried to do. He just couldn't make things work. He dropped out of high school. So maybe you think, well, maybe he had street smarts. Joey didn't have street smarts. People practically robbed this guy blind every chance that they got. He was too trusting of everybody that he met. And he was a longshoreman. So he worked along the Delaware River. He worked along the docks. And in the early 80s, you know, Philly has gone through a lot of ups and downs and different parts of the city have thrived when other parts of the city have struggled. And working on the docks in the early 80s was really tough. You didn't always have an opportunity to work. So the last time Joey Coyle worked was right around the holidays. So he'd been out of work for two months and he was addicted to meth. Any money that he got went to drugs. He lived in his mom's house on Front Street And his mom couldn't take watching what he was doing to himself, so she moved out. She moved in with his sister. And on the morning of the 26th, Joey was excited because he was expecting to get a paycheck, a long overdue paycheck from that work he did during the holidays. The paycheck didn't come, so he thought maybe he could beg his dealer to give him some blow. And that's the the thing about Joey was... He could convince people to do really anything for him. There were so many bars in South Philly that wouldn't even run a tab. They didn't even want to make him put up a tab because they knew he'd never pay it. And he was such a, such a good-hearted kid from the neighborhood. Like that's, one, that's another thing about the neighborhood, the neighborhoods in Philly. And, and Keeney and I were talking to Tiffany, who's here visiting us from North Carolina. The city might look a lot different than what you're used to down south. It's a little bit of a faster pace. There's a lot about Philly that really you you never forget where you came from, right? No matter how successful you might become, no matter what kind of job you might get, you don't forget your neighborhood. You don't forget your roots. And so even at almost 30 years old, although Joey Coyle was kind of a mess, people did a lot for him because he was just a decent, good-hearted guy. I almost called him a kid because even though he was 28, he was still living like he was an 18-year-old kid just graduating high school. So that morning, Joey goes outside, and there's two guys that live on the street. They live a couple blocks from him, Jay and John. They're out working on John's dad's car. Anybody want to guess what the car looked like? It was the Malibu, and the reason it had a blue fender was because John Bela, 20 years old, had been doing some work on his dad's car. He busted it up a couple weeks ago, and he was banging out the fender, and then he primed it to get it painted. So Joey says to them, I can get us some blow if you guys will give me a ride. And that's how they wound up on Swanson Street, almost having an accident with those two tubs. Joey Coyle took $1.2 million and he took it back to his mom's house and he opened the bags and they realized the money was from the casinos in Atlantic City. None of it was sequential. In essence, it had already been laundered. If you're smart, you could probably get away with it, especially back in 1981. But these dumbasses were not smart. Partly because they were on so much meth all the time. And partly because Joey Coyle had that ridiculously trusting nature. So initially, finding that money 
he thought it was a sign from his father in heaven. You know, Jeremy might laugh because I talk about signs a lot. I consider myself a very modern, independent woman, but I also have some very traditional Italian values. And, you know, I believe in the evil eye and dumb shit like that. And so, you know, as I learned more about Joey and and him thinking this was a sign from his father, like you work so hard, you're trying to get off the drugs, you're trying to take care of your mother who's sick, you're trying to help your sister. He's trying to do right by everybody and it just never works. Joey felt the money was his and he literally said... When he was interviewed later by a Philadelphia Inquirer reporter, he said, finders keepers. Isn't that what we were taught when we were five? (laughs) All of the money was in $100 bills. And so Joey was at least smart enough to realize, I can't be walking around spending $100 bills. It's going to be obvious that this money isn't mine, right? Even today, like, I don't know about you, but when I spend a $100 bill, like if I spend it at Target on $10 so that I can get change... I feel like somebody's looking at me like, is this thing counterfeit? Is she walking in here with a counterfeit $100 bill? But in the 80s, it would have been even more so. So Joey had a family friend named Carl Massey. I don't know if anybody recognizes that name, but that's an old name from from Philadelphia, from South Philly neighborhoods. Carl was a fighter. And in the 80s, he was much older. He was in his 50s. He'd had three heart attacks. He got out of boxing, but he was a bouncer at some clubs where connected guys hung out. So Joey figured if there's anybody that can help me break down this money, it's going to be Carl and his connections. And so some of what happened after he contacted Carl Massey is questionable. Because according to Joey Coyle and his two buddies, his buddies John and Jed, who found the money with him, they claim that somebody named Sonny Riccobini came to Carl Massey's house. Does anybody recognize that name? So Sonny and his brother Harry, back in the early late 70s and early 80s, were two of the most ruthless, notorious members of Philadelphia organized crime. So according to Joey, Sonny Riccobini comes to Carl Massey's house, and Joey has this master plan, right? The guy who's hopped up on meth, who stole $1.2 million, is the one who comes up with the master plan. He decides he's going to split the money. He'll take 400 k and the other two guys will each take 400 k They'll break it down into smaller bills. And once they do that, they can each keep $100,000 and they'll each give Joey back $300,000. Carl Massey swears Sonny Riccobini was never in his house. He was interviewed by multiple police. He was interviewed by incredible reporters from the Philadelphia Inquirer. He swears it was not Sonny Riccobini. It was a guy named Sonny. He doesn't know who he was. I honestly don't think it was one of the worst members of a Philadelphia mob family because if some guy who is hopped up on meth tells someone who runs the Philly mob that he's got $1.2 million and, hey, man, if you can help me break it down, I got a hundred grand for you, what do you honestly think that man is going to do? He's probably going to put a bullet in his head and walk out of the house with the $1.2 million. But at least initially, that's the plan. There's two men that are going to help Joey break down this money, and that's day one. That's within hours after Joey finding the money. They have to ditch the car because it's on the radio that the car is a blue, has a blue fender, and it's this big old Chevy Malibu. Where does Joey ditch the car? He drives to Jersey and ditches it at a shipyard where his brother works. (laughs) We're not talking about someone who's making smart choices. We're not talking about somebody who sits on the money. Joey tells his friends that they can't tell anyone about what they found. Can't tell their parents, can't tell their girlfriends. The only way they're going to get away with this is if they keep their mouth shut. 
Nobody keeps their mouth shut, especially not Joey Coyle. Joey Coyle spent three, four days all over South Philly handing out money. At night, he and his girlfriend, who happened to be 18, which is a little creepy because he was 28, he and his girlfriend would go to an old hotel on the Admiral Wilson Boulevard, and it was a horrible, vicious cycle. He would shoot up about once an hour. He would double check the bag of money to make sure that nobody stole it. They would leave. They would go to a bar. They would get drunk. They would come back. They would shoot up again. He would double check the bag of money. His paranoia got so fierce that literally in one afternoon, he took apart the toilet in his mother's house and stuffed wads of money inside the toilet that's under the bowl. And then about two hours later, decided that wasn't a good hiding spot. And in his mother's row house, there was a gap between the interior wall and the exterior wall. And the only way you could get to that gap was if you were up in the attic. So this fool, high on meth, climbs up into the attic, scales the boards, because you know what happens if you step between the boards, you crash through the ceiling. And he gets a rope and he drops the bag of money down between the walls of the house. And then he falls through the ceiling because he's so high, he can't like stay on top of the boards. Then he decides it's not a good place. He goes back up into the attic, gets the money out. He went through the most manic period of his life. And one of the worst things was having all of that money meant he could buy as much meth as he wanted to. He spent $22,000 on meth in 72 hours. And that was almost 40 years ago. Like, I can't even imagine somebody buying $22,000 worth of meth in 72 hours today, right? And when you think about inflation, and I I don't have my inflation calculator up in front of me, but that was $22,000 in 1981. Philadelphia police were all over the neighborhoods around Front Street and Wolf Street because there's no way anybody who wasn't from the neighborhood drove down Swanson. So that was one of the biggest tips besides the reports of what the car looked like and what the guys driving and riding in the car looked like, they knew it was only going to be a neighborhood guy who was on that street. And so their hope was that if they policed the shit out of the streets around Front and Wolf and Swanson, that somebody would give themselves up. Purolator just wanted the money back. They didn't want to arrest anybody. I mean, it's a $1.2 million loss. The night of the six o'clock news, the day the money was stolen, the Philadelphia police in South Philly went on the news and they said, we will not arrest you. We believe the person that has this money is afraid to come forward because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them. They're afraid they're going to wind up in jail. We believe you made a mistake. We just want the money back. So if you come forward, nothing will happen. The next morning, Purolator offered a $50,000 reward. All of the guys attached to this situation tried to convince Joey Coyle to turn the money in and claim the reward, and he wouldn't do it because he was so high all the time, he wasn't functioning like a normal human being. And he truly believed that this money belonged to him, that it purposely fell out at that moment in time, and they drove past at that moment in time because he was meant to have this money. Every few hours, he was going to different friends' houses all over South Philly, splitting up his portion of the $400,000. And everywhere he went, he said, yeah, the Purolator money, I got it. (laughs) And people looked at him like, they know Joey, right? Joey's the meth head from the neighborhood. And and I I don't like using that phrase, but that's how people in the neighborhood referred to him. Like, what are you talking about, man? You, You don't have that money. Here, let me show you. And he'd take out a bag 
And literally, it was a Catholic high school suitcase of his mother's that he was keeping the money in. He took it out and showed it to people. And he did this all over the neighborhood because what this did for him was help with the horrible self-esteem issues that he had. You know, everybody thought Joey was a nice guy, but they also knew he was a mess. They knew that Joey Coyle would never amount to anything. Stealing that purulator money made him like a god in South Philly. And so telling people that he was the one that pulled this off, when really all you did was pick something up off the ground that fell out of a truck, right? I mean, how many times have we heard stories in Philly about, where'd you get that? Oh, it fell off the back of a truck. Literally, the money fell off the back of a truck. One of his friends, when the $50,000 reward was announced, Joey had given one of his friends about $240,000 to hide. He was trying to spread the money around the city. So if he got picked up, he wouldn't lose all of it. One of his friends hired an attorney, a man named Alan Silverman, and he had the attorney contact the head of security at Purilator. And he said, I know who has the money. My client does not want to give you his name. Right now, my client has about one-fourth of the money. And if you are willing to give him a portion of that reward money, he will give you the money that he has. And eventually, that got to the police. But they didn't have a name because the attorney, attorney-client privilege, he refused to give up the name of, of Joey's friend. When the reward was announced, the two guys that were with Joey when he stole the money, they flipped out. They're like, we're not going to go to jail for this shit. We can split $50,000. We want this money. Joey became so paranoid, he was terrified that the mob guys that he believed were breaking down the money for him were going to come and find him and kill him. So he decides he's got to leave the country. He goes to another friend. His ex-wife worked for a travel agency. They booked Joey a flight out of LaGuardia Airport to Acapulco. At this point, after all the money that Joey has given away, either because he asked people to hide it or because he was just so high, he would walk down the street and be like, hi, here's $300. There's, there's one story, I think one of my favorite stories of Joey Coyle giving away money was he, was he was drunk and high and he walked into the house that was two doors down from his friend Michael's house. He just walked right in. And the homeowners were like, who the fuck are you? What are you doing walking into my house? Oh my God, oh my God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He runs out of the house and he's like, God, I feel really bad. I scared these people. He goes back, he knocks on their door and he offers to pay their mortgage. And they're like, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? You can't pay our mortgage. He's like, no, no, I can. Look, see all this money I have in the suitcase? I can pay your mortgage. They won't take his money. So he leaves after giving them like, I don't know, $500 or $1,000 because he felt so bad about what he did. By the time he gets to LaGuardia Airport, he's down to about $120,000. They break it up into $10,000 bundles and they stuff it in envelopes. And so Joey Coyle is walking around LaGuardia Airport with envelopes of money in his shoes and his socks. And he's afraid they're going to fall out. So he goes into a shop in the airport and he buys a pair of ladies pantyhose. He goes into the men's room. He takes off his pants. He puts on the pantyhose. And then he shoves the envelopes down into the hose. And so they're calling for boarding. It's time to start boarding the plane. And as he gets in line, a man walks up to him. Even though his ticket is in the name Frank Soda, a man walks up to him and says, Hey, man, you're Joey Coyle from the neighborhood, aren't you? He's like, Yeah, who are you? I'm the FBI. And by five o'clock that night, David, I got five. By five o'clock that night, he was back in Philly. He got out on bail three days later and the police recovered almost all of the money that was stolen. There was $270,000 buried in a cemetery behind a church in South Philly. Some woman that Joey didn't even know, he was high one night, he gave almost $13,000 to when she found out what happened. She walked into the police station and said, here, I don't think I should have this money. There was 100000 still left in his girlfriend's place. They arrested 
Carl Massey. So between all of the arrests and all the investigation, they got almost all of the money back. But Pure Later didn't want to press charges. On April 25th, a judge dismissed all charges against Joey Coyle. And as he walked out of the courthouse, the Philadelphia district attorney rearrested him. They didn't believe that the judge should have thrown out the case. So they got another judge to get another warrant and they rearrested him. He made bail a second time and he hired Chuck Peruto for his attorney. Now, that's a name that folks that aren't local wouldn't know. It's a name that folks, if you're not old like me, wouldn't know. But Chuck Peruto Jr. is a very well-known attorney in Jersey and Philly. Chuck had a little trouble of his own when his much younger girlfriend, unfortunately, wound up dead in his bathtub. So he hires Chuck Peruto and... Chuck convinces a judge to not let anybody talk about Joey's drug addiction and says that he went berserk and he had temporary insanity when he found this money. It made him insane and he didn't know what to do with it. And a jury acquitted him of all charges a year after the robbery. So real quick, just two things. I know we're getting short on time. Eight months later, he was back in jail for drug possession. And the sad thing is that money, as if his life wasn't tough enough, that money ruined his life. Because it increased his addiction with such severity. Because he had so much money in those six days to buy so much drugs. Disney decided to make a movie about this. But they made Joey Coyle much more clean cut than the real guy. The movie came out in September of 1993. August 15th, about a month before the movie premiered, Joey Coyle hanged himself. He never got over the shame of what he did. His drug addiction drove him into the ground for the next 12 years of his life. And he was so paranoid and embarrassed about what people would think of him when the movie came out, because even though the Joey Coyle in the movie wasn't addicted to meth, his story would come back into the public as the movie got more notoriety. And he was embarrassed of what he did, and he couldn't live with it. And so he took his own life before the movie came out. But he was called a hero. People in South Philly looked at him as Robin Hood. There was a t-shirt shop that even made t-shirts that said, Free Joey Coyle and had a picture of one of the Pure Later armored trucks with the back door open and money spilling out the back. And $5 from every t-shirt went to Joey's defense fund. So if you see a million dollars on the side of the road, all that shit that you all said at the beginning about what you would do with it, leave it where it is and don't touch it. I think Adam can go with that temporary insanity. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Thank you to Philly Podfest. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you to David for the great audio. Thank you to Philly. <laughs> Thank you to Philly Podfest for having me back again. If you're not familiar with the show, it's called Twisted Philly. You can find me on all major podcast apps. And I'm so grateful to so many of you for coming out tonight, especially on a Sunday night when you got work tomorrow. And Ina and her family, I just, you fucking got me, girl. You really did. Thank you very much. The percolator. Yeah. It's time for the percolator. 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 There's sort of a special place in my heart for Joey Coyle. Telling a story during a live show, you have a limited amount of time, especially when you're shooting the shit with everyone in the room for 10 minutes and there's another show right after yours. There are so many other stories about the six days Joey spent as a millionaire, other names and faces, other places where money was hidden. I had to really pick and choose how much detail I shared 
And while I cut out some of what I might have included had this been a traditional episode, my hope is that besides the main details of what happened with that pure later money, you got an essence of Joey Coyle. As I researched this story, I found so many quotes from Philadelphians in the Philly Inquirer and the Philly Daily News, some from 1981, right after the money was stolen, and others from 1993 when Joey committed suicide. Our other major paper, the Philadelphia Daily News, ran a story about Joey's death that included a poll. Was Joey Coyle a hero or a zero? Imagine being his sister or his girlfriend or one of his friends who tried to convince him to turn in the money and seeing that headline. They also ran his will. How the hell they got a hold of it, I couldn't tell you. Maybe a family member shared it, but it added to the poor taste demonstrated by the Philly Daily News. The Inquirer didn't give in to the sometimes tabloid style of reporting we often saw in the Daily News, and that's still the same today. My hat is off to the Inquirer reporters for their unbiased reporting about Joey's story, and for the thoughtful way one reporter in particular, Mark Bowden, presented Joey's story in his book Finders Keepers, the story of a man who found $1 million. I wouldn't necessarily call Joey a hero, but I damn sure wouldn't call him a zero either. There are people from his old neighborhood who saw him as a bit of a folklore legend, this messed up kid from Front Street who found a million bucks, and although he wanted to keep it, he wanted to share it too. He was like a modern-day Robin Hood, and he knew it was wrong. Come on. He may have said finders keepers and seen the money as a sign from above, but he was also very much aware of his situation. The fact he knew he had to break down the hundreds into smaller bills was evidence of that. I am glad he was acquitted. I know he broke the law, and there are many people, even to this day, who don't think he got the punishment he deserved. Joey was already in a prison of sorts. He was a captive to his addiction, his low self-esteem, the lack of opportunity that surrounded him, and he lived in a prison of his own making for the next 12 years of his life. There are folks who will listen to this episode and probably shake their head at me because I don't see Joey Coyle as a villain. I understand that. You're not alone. There were many people like you who felt that way when Joey was arrested and even still felt that way after he died. Maybe it's the images I see in my head about this and all the other stories I tell. I see the block on Front Street where Joey lived. I see a young man who felt like he was wasting his life, yet couldn't seem to stop himself. The only movement in his life was inertia. I can picture Joey Coyle and his friends John and Jay throwing $100 bills up in the air in his mother's bedroom, thinking this was the end of all of their worries, all of their struggles. The end of day after day standing on the docks along the Delaware River hoping they'd get work only to be sent home. I can almost feel his sense of hope that's covered in a wrapper of dread as reality sets in. How do you hide one million dollars? And yeah, there's a part of me that wants to say, hey asshole, I don't care if you think this is manna from heaven. This isn't your money and you're old enough to know that. But I also wanted Joey to win. I wanted his story to end differently, so I guess I cling to the silver lining, the fact Joey didn't go to jail for stealing over a million dollars. That feels like something that could only happen in the city of brotherly love. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. 
Ciao for now, Twisters.